Well, on this Transfiguration Sunday, here we get kind of the, I guess you could call it the granddaddy of mountaintop experiences. Uh, getting to stand there and be a disciple and see Jesus in all of his glory. Uh, but this was not the first mountaintop experience like this in the Bible. This was the third big one. The first one, of course, you might remember, is Moses in the burning bush. Right? He went on Mount Sinai, God spoke to him in the burning bush, and there was, and he said, when Moses would come down, it said there was even glowing light around him. And then, of course, you have Elijah, the prophet. Uh, he went up onto Mount Horeb and was being chased, and he asked God to show himself, and God said, well, uh, I can't quite show myself in full, so hide behind this rock, and as I run by, you'll see sort of the passing light, like it's a little bit too much for you to handle, but you can see the afterburn or something. And now we get Peter and James and John going up with Jesus on a mountain. And uh, interestingly, uh, Jewish tradition has it that both Moses and Elijah did not die, according to tradition. And, you, and, and some of this isn't in the scriptures, but if you do read Deuteronomy, it says that Moses came to the promised land and looked at it from across the river, but he wasn't allowed to enter it, and so then he went behind a rock and disappeared. And it doesn't say what happened to him, uh, but a tradition then grew that he just, uh, that God basically beamed him up or something. And Elijah, as you, if you remember, he got, he got carried away in the chariots of fire. And so here are the two biblical figures who did not die and who encountered God on a mountain. And now Jesus is standing there with those two. It's a kind of a vision of the resurrection, a vision of the future, a taste of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. And the whole experience must have been just absolutely amazing for Peter and James and John to stand there and see all this. I mean, these guys were hardworking guys from small towns. Uh, they lived in a world where most people rarely went more than a few miles away from where they were born. And now they're standing there looking at a vision of God. And I can imagine this wave of peace sweeping over them as they stood there watching this, what it must have been like to be in that bright light. It kind of reminded me, it kind of reminded me of a time I took a couple of my boys up to Madera Canyon. And uh, we, we were taking the, if you're familiar with, it's called the Agua Caliente saddle. You get to up and you can go left or right. We went right. And then the temperature was, it dropped and it was probably about 35 or something. Freezing cold snow but there was one spot where it could go over the ridge and the sun was hitting it and there was no uh, wind and we all just sat there staring into the sun like lizards. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I still have two and a half miles to go to get back down that hill and it's cold. I don't want to leave here, but I cannot stay on the mountain. You have to go back. And so Peter and John, James and John, I think that's kind of what it was like for them, you know, in a hard world, 
they lived in an empire that worked them to death and taxed them to death and left them poor and killed them if they complained about it. And life back then was generally short and back-breaking, unless you were one of the Roman elites. And, so, and there was no opportunity. You couldn't get better by... You couldn't improve yourself by working hard or anything. There was no mobility. It was kind of like what today we call the third world, where most people live in little huts, don't have running water. They had that like a third of the world doesn't have running water still. I mean, you think about that, what we take for granted. That most of our, our planet has no indoor toilets. That most of our planet will, can never improve, can climb a ladder and achieve a success achieve success and a comfortable retirement no matter how hard they work and how good the decisions they are because there just isn't a job for them and money for them. And no matter how, you know, and I don't know if you've seen, there's some of these videos out there of uh, mines, old diamond mines. Because what happens in Africa is the, you know, corporations come in and they'll mine something, uh, whatever the mineral is, and when they determine it's not commercially viable, They'll just leave it. It doesn't mean there are no diamonds there or no gold there or no whatever there. It just means the cost of extracting them on a commercial scale exceeds the revenue they'd bring in, so they just quit. But on a small scale, if you can get one of those diamonds, you've made a year's worth of money. And so what happens is they got guards standing at the gate in the morning and then they there's a buzzer and you can watch these videos of hundreds of people like a swarm going through this old open pit mine trying to get the best spots so they can get that one rock to feed their families with this is the life that our world lives life is hard life was hard and you can imagine that if you were in that kind of a place, you know, Peter and James and John, they probably weren't that desperate. They probably had steady work, but they probably lived in this little adobe house with all the family and the, and the animals. And you could imagine if you lived that kind of life and then suddenly you're standing on the mountain and you're looking at the face of God, you would be not exactly chomping at the bit to get back down, would you? You're thinking, Jesus, let's stay here and forget about the old life. Let's put up our tents and we'll camp, we'll perma-camp. I don't know where we'll get the food or the water or the sleeping bags. We'll figure that out. But if you can find Moses and Elijah, we can find sleeping bags. It's good, Lord, to be here. How often do we really truly get to say that when you're someplace? It's good Lord to be here. How often do you get to be in a place where you're filled with just such an inexpressible joy that you don't want to leave? And you just want to stay there and watch the world go by. Peter did. Now Peter, of course, always kind of missed the point. He either got it perfect or he missed it. But either way, he just said whatever he thought the point was. I give him credit for that. Um, and, but he wasn't shown Jesus in all his glory so that he could escape the world that he lived in and the trials he had to go through. Jesus didn't do that to pull Peter and James and John out. He was shown that world so that he could have the confidence to go back down the hill 
and make a difference, which is the blessing and the curse of a mountaintop experience. They can be these emotional, these spiritual highs where you can't imagine anything better. And they can go a couple ways. You can respond to them in a couple ways. The first way is to look at it like Peter did and say, you know what? Uh, I just want to stay on the mountain. Watch the world go by. Realize that you're finally at peace with yourself and God and nature and, and this universe. And you, know, you don't want to go back into the stress. Just let it go. In that case, the mountaintop becomes a bit of an excuse to do nothing. It becomes the excuse to run and hide, to get away. It's sort of the cliche about the person who's been working too hard and is stressed and finally takes leave and then sits down on the beach and relaxes and goes, I'm not going back to work. That's a lot of people's nervousness about sabbaticals too, right? Pastor will take a sabbatical and sit there and go, oh man, that, that was stressful. I think I'll just retire. It's been done. Don't worry, I'm not retiring at 51. <laughs> but it happens. I've heard it enough times. So stressed out at what you do that when you finally get relief, you start to wonder, do I really want to go back to this? But what you forget when you're on vacation or when you're on like a spiritual retreat or you're on the mountaintop meditating is that it's an artificial environment you're in. It's an artificial situation. Part of why it's so mountaintop and so wonderful is because you're not trying to figure out how to pay your bills. Because you're not dealing with the leak in your drip line. Because you're not worrying about the interest rate on your mortgage. It's because you are separated from the world that's what makes it so peaceful. Rather than living in a more just system where you can exist in the world and not be so stressed. It's artificial and it's unsustainable. I guess maybe, maybe if you have some big trust fund or something, daddy was a CEO or something, you might never have to work, but that's not my problem. And that's the first concern, that I'll give up on the world's problems and just want to sort of be drunk in a spiritual stupor. And you can see this in a lot of branches of Christianity. Right? You get a great experience of the Holy Spirit, and then they look at how different the world is and start to disparage the world we live in and see it as kind of dirty and, and wonder if the world can even be saved and wonder if we should even bother. Now, of course, it was Jesus who said he came not to condemn the world but save it. But at that moment, you're not doing biblical analysis. You're just kind of thinking, wow, this is so great to be in the presence of God Look at the world out there with all its problems. And, and, and I, I don't want to deal with systems of corruption and economics. And oh my gosh, it's so, it's so infuriating and exhausting. The world can never be heaven. So forget about it. Rescue all the souls you can and then watch it burn. Don't worry about it because Jesus is going to come again and we're going to all get to live on that mountain and then we can watch it all go up in flames and we can laugh at Richard Dawkins' face. Ha ha, told you so, Richie Rich. 
How's your selfish gene doing now, buddy? That's assuming that fundamentalists are reading Richard Dawkins and know about the selfish gene theory. But it's escapism Christianity at its root, right? I, I, I heard, now on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, I heard one pastor I knew in Washington, D.C. He lived in a neighborhood where the neighborhood was so rough that he said when he took over in 1973, he had to keep a shovel by the front door because of all the needles and various prophylactic devices that were being used there during the night. And that he had to have, he had to have security cameras and, and people were do, literally dying on the, door, on, on the front door from overdoses. And he said, you know what? My job is not to prepare, save souls and prepare them for heaven. We need to do something now. And so he did. He built big homeless shelters and rehab centers. He bought this huge building right next to him, converted. The guy was great, found all sorts of grant money. I mean, he took that seriously. But then I remember meeting with one of his members who said, you know, I like the pastor, but you can have a youth group and feed the homeless too. And so... They, after he retired, they thanked him greatly and then called a pastor who, set up a, who could also set up a youth group. And now it's actually a, re, a little bit of a church and a social agency. But he was reacting against the escapism. And I don't blame him. If half of his stories were true, you always do wonder a little bit if some of these war stories are a little bit, you know, my call was rougher than your call kind of thing. But even half of them are true. Oh, man, I was impressed. It's hard to watch people OD on your doorstep and think that it's all that important about heaven. But Jesus did care about spiritual growth. And Jesus told Peter in no uncertain terms that his calling was not to stay on the mountain. It was not to escape. It was not to get away. It was not to leave the world and its problems behind, but it was to go back down the mountain to do the work of the gospel. And as history would show, Peter did, and he died doing it. We cannot stay on the mountain. But having seen the mountain, we know that it can be better, which is how mountaintop experiences can be very empowering. Once you realize that God's kingdom will prevail and it can be this great, you can forget about worrying so much about what happens to you in this world while you're trying to make life better. Because you know, no matter what they do to you, I got Jesus in the end. The Roman Empire may tell you that they will last forever and that this is just the way it is and nothing can be changed and it can't be made better. It's just the way it is. We have to accept it and work with it. And if, of course, if everyone believed that, then nobody would bother rebelling against anything, right? But if they thought it could be better, and that it would be better, then it's harder to get them to just take it. People with hope are harder to control because they don't buy the lies. Going to the mountain gives us a glimpse of the glory of God that awaits so that we can go back down the mountain and do the work, get back to the grind, 
back to watching people OD and stagger on the bike path, back to watching the bombs and the floods, we know that it does not just have to be this way, and that in Jesus it can be better. So there is no shame in going on that spiritual retreat to, to spend time meditating, to spend time in contemplation, to spend time in the presence of the glory of God. It's what we need to give us the hope and the energy to go back and build the kingdom today. We need the mountain to build the kingdom off the mountain. Amen.